And Jesus, we just thank you tonight for who you are and what you've been doing in our lives. And Lord, as we're finishing up this year, we just ask that we would be cognizant to make sure that we give you all the glory, all the praise forevermore in your amazing name. Come on, everyone says tonight. Amen. Awesome. Why don't you give it to the, up for the band? And grab your seats. Amazing. While you guys grab your seats, I'm just going to pray one more time. Jesus, thank you for tonight. And God, I just ask that uh, your presence would be here with me. Lord, that you would bless this message and every word that comes from me tonight and that every word that comes out of my mouth would have been originated from you. Holy Spirit, may this message impact people in a unique way that you would use me, your servant, to bring forth your word in your amazing name. Come on, everyone says again. Amen. Amen. Awesome. Y'all, I like driving. I really do. And I like driving on the highway to an extent. I mean, catch this. You uh, put on an audio book, put on a good podcast, and just cruise out, and you're good to go. You throw on your cruise control, down a cup of coffee, and just drive down the highway, and it's amazing. And the, the feeling of this can be unmatched, but then inevitably, at some point, my moment of tranquility begins to die and go away as the scenery that I'm looking at begins to be replaced for a sea of red as the people in front of me start hitting their brakes. I love driving. I hate traffic. In fact, when I lived in Ontario, going to Toronto for me was a last resort because I would always get stuck in traffic for hours. Then I moved to Calgary. And y'all, the Deerfoot can get clogged up a little bit, but it's nothing like Toronto. But do you know what we have here in Calgary? We've got Stony Trail. Stony Trail goes around the city and allows me to get around the city without getting bogged down by the downtown traffic. So I can stay in the vicinity of Calgary and experience the benefits of Calgary without being disrupted by the pace of the city. We've got Stony Trail Christians too. I'm talking about Christians who like having the benefits of being in the vicinity of Jesus, but don't want to get so close as to have their lives be disrupted by Jesus. I mean, I'm talking about these Stony Trail Christians are Christians who want the blessing, the healing, the favor, want eternal life, but we don't want to change who we are or what we do. In fact, Stony Trail Christians want God to conform to my ideas on who he is. In fact, it's God who is a part of my story. Mark Batterson says it this way. He says, in the beginning, God made man in his image, and we've been making God out of our image ever since. Colossians 1 says that everything was created for Jesus, so you and I are actually a part of God's grand story. 
Now, I don't know about you, but that's actually really good news for me. It's encouraging for me that I'm a part of God's story. For those of you who had a really difficult year this past year, for those of you who've been waiting for 2023 to be done and to get into 2024, the fact that we are a part of God's grand story is really good news because it means that last year does not define my future. Sickness is not the end of my story. Loss is not the end of my story. Pain and disappointment and heartache is not the end of my story. Because if it's God who is the one who is writing my story, that it means if God brought me into it, he can bring me out of it. The author of Hebrews writes it this way. He says that Jesus is the author and the finisher of my faith, which means that if it's Jesus who is writing my story, and he's the only person who's able to bring it to completion. Say this with me tonight. Say, my story is not finished. My story is not finished. A.W. Tozer said it this way. He says, anything God has ever done, he can do it now. Anything God has ever done anywhere, he can do it here. Anything God has ever done for anyone, he can do it for you. Your story isn't over, but it's being written as a character in God's story in which Jesus is the main character. Now, we just finished having Christmas. In a couple of hours, it's New Year's. Tomorrow's New Year's Day. Chances are you've either invaded somebody's house or you're about to. And inevitably, these words are going to be uttered somewhere the holiday season. Make yourself at home. Make yourself at home. Now, what we really mean when we say make yourself at home is that you can make yourself at home in the area that I'm comfortable with you being in the main floor bathroom, my living room, and you can eat the food that I'm gonna serve you. What I don't expect is to see John up in my room, feet kicked up on my bed, using my ensuite bathroom and cooking his own meal with, his, with my ingredients. When I say make yourself at home, what I really mean is to enjoy the limited space that I'm comfortable with you being in. Can I be real, be real again with us tonight? Sometimes, we do the exact same thing with God. We say, God, you can have my entire life, but what we really mean is you can have my faith life, my Christian life, my church life, my small group, my community group life, but don't you touch my work life. I still need to be me at work. Keep your distance with my school life. I still need to fit in. I need to be in control of my finances. I mean, I went to school. I put together the job descriptions. I put together the, the business plan. I started my own business. So keep your hands off of my finances. It's like we have a whole house that we've invited God into and then we've put it in, into one or two or three rooms and we've locked the door. And if I can be honest, many of our problems, I think, are a result of us having a one or two or sometimes three room God. We have challenges with our finances and with our families and our health and our workplace, but if Jesus is the focus of God's story, then the question is, how can I then begin to put God first in my life? In fact, in Matthew, Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and all his righteousness and all these things then will be added to you. So how do I put God first? John, when he was exiled to the island of Patmos because of his Christian faith and his refusal to compromise on his Christian, on his faith, he had this vision of Jesus. And in this encounter of Christ, Jesus told him to write a book on what he sees and to send it to the seven churches. 
since the number seven represents completion or fullness, John speaking to these seven churches in Asia is in a way speaking to you and I and all churches throughout all times, throughout all history. Which means that although there's a direct message in the book of Revelations to the church in Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis, there's a message in there for you and I as well. And this is what the Apostle John writes in the book of uh, Revelations to the church of Ephesus. He says, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and that you put to test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you have found them to be false, and you have perseverance, and you have endured for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. I mean, that's a great thing to receive, a great letter for us to get, for, for the church in Ephesus to receive, and Ephesus was known as the first and the greatest metropolis of Asia. Ephesus had something to brag about. Ephesus was the hub of trade. Ephesus was the gateway of all of Asia. Ephesus was the wealthiest city in all of Asia. Ephesus was the center of worship to Artemis, also known as Diana, and its temple was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And it was here that there was a mighty move of God that took place, and the people who were practicing magic in uh, the city of Ephesus, they took all their books and they burned them out, and we can read about that in Acts chapter 19. And I can imagine that some of these people are still attending church when this book was being written. Heraclitus, an ancient philosopher who was also known as the weeping philosopher, said that the reason for his tears was that nobody could live in Ephesus without weeping at its immorality, which he must see on every side. It's in this environment that the church was worshiping in. And Jesus says this, he says, I know your deeds. The deeds are the activities, the work you do. When you serve in kids' church because there's a great need, when you go and minister to those in your community, Jesus says, you are engaged in ministry and I see your work. But they're not just a serving church, they're also a sacrificing church. He says, I know your toil, and that word toil means weariness. It means to work to the point of exhaustion. It's like when you're done working an overtime shift, you come home, you get your house ready to leave Bible study. You feel like you've got nothing left to give and you still continue to push. And Jesus says he's noticed it. Not just a serving church, not just a sacrificing church, they're also a steadfast church. He says you've seen your perseverance. In John's writing, perseverance depicts the idea of waiting or abiding. They have these promises from God that they're holding on to, and they have not yet seen the fulfillment of these promises. And they haven't given up. They're they're waiting and they're holding on to like, God, I still believe you for the promise that you said that I would receive. They're also a separated church. It says that you don't tolerate evil men. See, they've identified people who've been living an unacceptable lifestyle, and they would rather continue in their sin than to be obedient to Christ. And so they've separated themselves from these people. They drew the line. They didn't cross it. They are a serving church. They are a sacrificing church. They are a steadfast church and a separated church, but they're also a suffering church. It says that you've persevered and that you've endured. They've been persecuted. They've seen family members turn against one another. They've lost jobs and social standing. They've been outcasted. Ignatius would later call Ephesus the highway of martyrs. They've done all these things. They've served. They've sacrificed. They've been steadfast. They've been separated. They've suffered. And Jesus says, you have not 
grown weary, soldiered on. As difficult as today seems, you've continued to fight the good fight. And to have Jesus say this to them in the middle of what was happening in Ephesus is huge. It's like Jesus congratulating you today for not using technology. They pulled off an amazing feat. What everyone else was doing didn't matter because they were doing a good work. And now it's validated. Jesus had recognized what they were doing. And it's written down and it's permanent now. Jesus isn't done, though. He says, I have this against you. He says, you have left your first love. I mean, if I was them and I got the letter, I'd be like, we're doing okay, right? Nine out of ten ain't bad. Like, that's well beyond passing. My parents would be really happy with that grade. You're doing all these things. I'm serving the poor. I'm greeting at church. I'm leading Bible study. I'm on the worship team. I give generously. I do my daily devotions. I'm doing all these things. I'm holding on to the promise that you've given me. I'm doing all of these things for Jesus. You see, Jesus didn't say that they didn't love him at all. They said, you didn't love me first. So we can do all of these things and still not love Jesus first. See, in the busyness of life, in the busyness of ministry, Jesus no longer held the front position of their lives. Jesus, who sees absolutely everything and knows the heart, had this against the church. And if I can be real, he might, this ha- he might have this against you tonight. But I want you to notice what it says about who left who. It says, you have left your first love. One day there was a husband and a wife and they were driving and the wife turns to her husband. She says, honey, do you remember when we were dating? And he's like, oh, babe, I remember dating. Right? It was a good time, right? And, and she's like, remember we were, uh, we were so close to each other. We, uh, when, we were dri- when, we, when you were driving, I would, you know, sit next to you. You'd put your arm around me. I'd nuzzle my head up into your shoulder and you'd kiss me on the top of my head as you were driving. She's like, yeah, it was, a, it was a great time. I loved going on our drives and all that. And she said, now, now look at us now. She's like, I could barely reach you. We can barely hold hands in our car. And she's like, what happened to us? And the husband turns to the wife and, she says, and he says this. He says, honey, I never moved. You might be here tonight and you're like, man, I feel so distant from God. I feel so disconnected. I feel like my life has just been blowing up. I don't know what to do, right? I, like, I don't know why I feel so far away from God. Why can't I hear God? Why can't I feel his presence? Can I tell you something tonight? And this might sting just a little bit. God hasn't moved. The church in Ephesus had been following a program. Their duty had replaced their devotion. Ephesus had relegated Jesus to one or two rooms. What happens? Life gets busy. You might get a promotion. You get married. You have kids. Maybe, you need to, maybe you're working so hard so you can stay on honor roll. Maybe you're going to the gym so you can make that sports team. You're trying to manage your finances. You're juggling relationships and other responsibilities. These things aren't bad. In fact, these things are really, really good. But if we're not careful, God can, be something out, can become something else that we need to do. He, he can become a box that we need to check off. 
The passion and the excitement that you once had for God begins to diminish as passion is replaced for a task. God might have had access to your entire house at one point in your life, but now he's a task to complete and he's relegated to a single room. Now what's amazing is that God's word is alive, which means it has the ability to speak to your problems and your circumstances right now. And you might be here and you might be listening and you're like, oh my goodness, goodness, that's me. I've left my first love. I put Jesus in one room, closed the door, locked it, and thrown away the key. Well, that's you for two things really quickly. Number one, I believe that that is the spirit of God that is speaking to you tonight. And number two is that God's conviction comes with actionable steps. Because Jesus doesn't just leave the church there. He says, okay, you've left your first love, which, by the way, it's me. But this is how we fix it. And he says this. He says, therefore, remember from where you have fallen, repent, and do the deeds you did at first. He says three things. He says, remember, repent, and he says, redo. First thing Jesus says is to remember. Say remember with me tonight. Let's say that again. Say remember. In Psalm chapter 42, the psalmist is describing some trouble. It's a trial that, that, that he's in. And he says this. He says, as, it's a well-known verse. We know it. He says, as the deer pants for water, so my soul thirsts for you. The fact that a deer is panting for water means that a deer is looking for water and it cannot find it. Once the psalmist takes a few verses to begin to describe a situation, the psalmist begins to remember. And he says this. He says, these things I remember. And I pour out my soul from within me. For I used to go along with the throng and lead them in procession in the house of God with the voice of joy and thanksgiving and a multitude keeping festival. Before I felt distant from God, the psalmist is saying, this is what I did. I was a worship leader in the house of God. He's saying, this is what I was doing when I felt close to God. Let me ask you a question tonight. When you felt close to God, what were you doing? What were you involved in? Big question, what was going on in the inside of your heart? Do you remember when you woke up and you couldn't wait to get into the word of God? And you maybe, maybe you might have slightly neglected some other things, like you showed up to places with your hair a little bit of a mess because you overspent some time with, with God's word, you, or you couldn't wait to tell somebody about Jesus. You couldn't wait to tell your friends about what you had just read in scripture. You were at church well before the service started, Praying, asking that God would begin to do something new in not only your life, but also in church every single week. Do you remember? The psalmist says this. He says, don't despair. Don't look down on yourself, but hope in God. Because what you, want, what you once did before, you can do again. What brought you close to God can bring you close to him once again. So number one, he says, remember. Number two is repent. Say repent. Let's try that again. Say repent. repent. Now, sometimes when I'm driving on the highway, I miss my exit. I know. I get a little bit too invested in the audiobook or the podcast that I'm listening to when I pass my exit. The next thing that I do, I don't continue to drive and say, oh, well, right, I'll get there eventually. I get off on the next exit, go over the overpass, and come back down around on the, onto the on-ramp so I can get off where I was supposed to get off, event, like, originally. This is the imagery of repentance. It's realizing that I'm going in a direction that I no longer want to go in because I felt more connected with God when he had access to every room in my house. And I was doing some specific things. This is 
how I felt close to God. So the question that we need to ask again is this. What was it that created the distance in our lives? Now, here's the thing. I think we can begin to get stressed out a little bit by, by, by this question. Because we look at our life and we're like, things are so different now than they were back then. You might have a new job. You might have a big person job now. You might have kids and a family. You might have sports schedule. You might have a school schedule that you're trying to maintain. Other relationships. You might be in your first dating relationship. Listen, I get that. But those aren't the cause. See, on the surface, some things have changed, but the root of these things need to be addressed. And I believe the drift comes from two primary places. The first one is this, is that we've deprioritized Christ. See, it's amazing to have these things, but Christ still needs to be first in our lives. And when he is not, we need to begin to readjust to make him first in our lives. Let me challenge you tonight to make this your motto for this upcoming year that in 2024, we're going to put Christ first in everything that we do. The second thing is this, is that we make church or my relationship with Christ all about me. And y'all, this is a North American problem. We ask the question, what can church offer me? What if they don't sing my favorite songs? What if they don't have the ministry that... I want? Or what will Jesus do if I do this for him? Let me be clear for a moment. All of this is about Jesus, the Son of God who lived, bled, and died so that we can have relationship with him. All of this is to celebrate Jesus, to honor him, to glorify him. He owes me nothing, and I owe him everything. So what do we do? We remember, we repent, and once we've repented, we begin to redo. we got to put some things into action. Maybe you need to start getting up a little bit early. Set your alarm clock to spend some time with Jesus before you go to work or before you go to school. Maybe you need to start a Bible study from your home. Maybe you need to commit to attending church every single week this next year. Maybe after this tonight, you need to leave here, find, a, find your spot form, and begin to start serving again in church because you did that before. Redoing what we did in the past helps us to, put, to, to allow God into every area of our lives. Now, you know, I love Paul's prayer in Ephesians. And Paul is praying for the same church that John is writing to, It's the church of Ephesus. And consequently, he's actually praying for us too. And then Paul gets to this last part of his prayer where he starts talking about God. And this is what he says. He says, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more, say immeasurably more, than we can ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. He says, now to him, now to God who is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or or imagine. Now, that uh, word immeasurably more in Greek is actually two words put together to make a compound word. It's huper ek peresu. Say that with me. Say huper ek peresu. Now, the two words, this is what it means. The first one, huper, means, is where we get the word hyper from. It means above, beyond, or in excess of. The second word, ek peresu, means 
more. Charles Spurgeon, an old-time pastor and theologian, said that there's no language that is powerful enough to get this idea of this verse across. Now, here's the thing. All of us would probably agree if Paul wrote to him who is able to do more than we can ask or think. Now, more than I can ask or think, I want you to imagine with me for a second that you're going, I know, trick-or-treating, right? You knock on somebody's door, and they open it up, and you say the words, trick-or-treat, right? And you're expecting the little, small chocolates to go into you, that little, little basket that you have. And they look over at you, and they're like, hey, just one second. They reach around the door, and they grab a big box of chocolates, and they drop it in your bag, and they're like, hey, you can have the entire thing of full-size chocolate bars. Now, that is amazing. It's more than you asked or imagined. You're in a plus. Paul writes increasingly more, or he writes immeasurably more, which I want you to think about it this way. It's, again, same idea. You're going trick-or-treating. You knock on the door. You got your little thing. You're expecting the small things of, of, of chocolate to be dropped into your, thing, into your, your, your bag. And the person opens the door, and you say, trick-or-treat. And they say, all right, just one second. And then they pull out a radio, and you hear, he's here. And you're like, I'm about to get kidnapped. This is how it ends. Next thing you know, you see a semi-truck driving down the street, parks out right in front of the house. It opens up from front to back, from top to bottom, are boxes of full-size chocolate bars that are all for you. This is increasingly more uh, than you can ask or, or exceedingly more than you can ask or imagine. Paul says, to him who's able to do exceedingly more than you can ask or imagine, God has so much more that he wants to do in your life, but he can't be Lord of a room. He needs to be Lord of your life. He needs to be your first love. And there is access to so much more that sometimes we're not even aware of. September 18th, 1990, the Ottawa Citizen ran an article of a man by the name of Danny Simpson. He robbed a bank, stole $6,000. He sentenced to six years for his crime. Now, they ran an article not because of the $6,000 that he stole, but the gun that he used to steal the $6,000 with was worth up to $100,000. Now, if we adjust it for inflation, it was worth, it's worth today $230,000. What Danny was looking for, which was money, was already in his hands. What you're looking for is already in the hands of the Lord. He just needs to be Lord of your whole house, not just a room. Some of us tonight have barely allowed God into one room of our house. Others have given God, God access to a few rooms, but we've got some rooms still locked up. There's this old saying that goes like this. that says, until God is Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. Listen, there is so much that God has in store for us, but we've got to give God our entire lives, not just one room. We're going to sing a song tonight, and while we do, I want you to search your heart for a moment and ask this question. Am I keeping God out of an area in my life? How am I going to prioritize God this year? What room or rooms do I need to give God access to this year? For some of us, it might be our friends. For others, it could be our family. For other people, it could be our health or our sports team, maybe our career. It could be our finances. So while the worship team leads us in this song, 
I encourage you to take some time to give God an area of your life that you've, come, that you've kept separated from him so he can be first in your life. Let's pray. Jesus, I just thank you for each person. And Lord, I just ask that you would help us to prioritize you this year. That we would surrender everything to you. That we wouldn't hold anything back, but we would continue to give of each and every room that is within our house. In your amazing name.